Good morning, and welcome to reInvent. Welcome also to this session, TLC 301 on real-time communications. It's the first session in the telecommunications track on industry day-to-day. -day. Thank you for being here. How uh, many of you do not know what um, an Amazon VPC is? A show of hands, please. Wow. OK. It may be that the content in this session is a little fast-paced. Um, I recommend that you follow up with some 200-level uh, sessions in the networking and compute track. How many of you have a real-time communications production workload running on AWS? A show of hands, please. A number of you. Fantastic. Uh, hopefully, this session will be a refresher of capabilities that you're already using. But the large majority of you fall into the bucket that I think is in the intermediate stage of your journey on the AWS cloud. And you may have questions as to how to achieve high availability, scalability, elasticity, and global outreach with real-time communications on AWS. Well, this session is for you. Hopefully, we can answer some of those questions that you have. My name is Shoma Chakravarti. I'm an AWS solution architect and global telecom leader for Telco. Joined with me today is Ahmed Khan. He is um, the AWS solution architect for a company that has been pioneering changes in real-time communications, a company called Twilio. Together, we will try to provide um, helpful content and context for this session. So let's get started. Topics we will cover. Briefly, an overview of real-time communications workloads Fundamental AWS capabilities that serve as building blocks for SIP and WebRTC-based solutions. Scalability, high availability, elasticity, and design patterns. Application enrichment. Best practices that are distilled from our customers' experiences. First, let's touch upon an overview. This conversation that we're having today would be very different were it not for the development of SIP and WebRTC. SIP was standardized in the early 2000s, and since then it's seen widespread market adoption. WebRTC is more recent, but it has changed the game, fired up the developer ecosystem. And what we see are a whole emerging suite of RTC use cases. Beyond voice, video, just chat, you have new use cases emerging that allow for collaboration, not just conferencing, desktop sharing, document updates in real time. IVR applications that are powering business functions like call centers, customer service centers, et cetera. Of course, there's gaming. And then um, with the use of WebSockets, which enable full duplex communication in WebRTC, we're seeing use cases that incorporate real-time content, data feeds, crowdsourcing applications, and contextual interactions with RTC under the hood. There have been many developments, technological advances, in the fields of machine learning, natural language processing, and even device technologies that are being incorporated with communications as a service, integrated with these capabilities, to provide whole new customer experiences and new business models are emerging. 
But let us take a step back from the potential we talked about and deconstruct a very simple topology of a typical RTC solution. You have in this architecture several different components, and we'll just refresh our terminology. There are endpoints, which could be IP-based phones, SIPsoft phones, or just web browsers. You have the entry point for all these devices, assumed here to be the internet, but it could be uh, a VPN or a private network. The entry point for these endpoints is the SVC. It is your firewall for the solution. Because the SVC is typically configured as a SIP back-to-back -back user agent, it can exert control not only in the signaling, but in also the media transmission call flows. And as a result of that, typically SVCs do a lot more than just providing security and NAT traversal. They do media transcoding, often centralized policy management. They um, perform functions for mediation, for billing. Needless to say, the SVC is a very critical component of this architecture. Then you have behind the SVC, hidden by the SVC, the topology of your application servers, your media servers, your conferencing servers. You may have media relay servers as well. If you wish to connect to the PSTN, the legacy um, telecom network, you would have a PSTN gateway, and you would be integrated with that. Often, there is a SIP redirect server that's part of the architecture. This is, some, um, this is a SIP server that accepts uh, 3xx um, redirection calls. And it's typically used to provide additional intelligent routing logic. I do want to talk about the notion of a registrar DB. This is the database where you store uh, user metadata and location information that's later on used to, um, to set up communication between your peers in a network. The scope of this session is to review mechanisms for high availability for the critical components in this architecture, scalability, which is um, a huge value prop um, for this type of workload, and elasticity, which becomes important if cost effectiveness is a business criteria. Last but not the least is if you are addressing a global customer base, uh, a global customer base, then how do you take advantage of the global footprint that AWS has to augment your RTC workloads. The AWS platform offers a really broad range of cloud-based services. We're not going to talk about all of them. We're just going to highlight a few that serve as the building blocks for our RTC solution, and we're talking going to stitch these capabilities together to form design patterns. So this is a visual representation, a virtualized AWS cloud-based representation of the basic RTC topology that we saw before. And you will notice a few AWS capabilities here. First, there is the concept of an AWS region. We have um, 16 regions all over the world with 44 availability zones, announced plans for six more and 17 more availability zones. 
This is a growing global infrastructure footprint. Each region consists of several availability zones, where each availability zone itself is a grouping of data centers. These availability zones are uh, built in close proximity to each other so that in the case of failure, the latency is minimized, but the availability zones are also built in separate domains. They're separated by utility grid isolation, floodplain isolation, so it provides you a high degree of fault tolerance. In each, in a region, you can construct your own private network in the AWS cloud. And this is the Amazon Virtual Private Cloud, the Amazon VPC. VPC comes with many powerful capabilities. You can decide the addressing in your VPC. You can decide the routing in your VPC. You can also um, create firewall rules and add security to your VPC by using network access control lists. Furthermore, you can determine and define how you connect and how your users connect to this VPC. The VPC could be a seamless extension of your on-premise network. Um, it could be accessible to users over the internet, or it could be a completely private space, not accessible to users in the internet, except through a NAT gateway. There are subnets that you can create within your VPC, similar to how you would do in an on-premise network. You can configure some of your subnets to be public-facing, and a public subnet would be the logical subnet for public-facing components such as the WebRTC gateway or the SPC. And you have the private subnet where you would hide the topology of your backend servers. Inside these subnets, you launch Amazon EC2 instances. This is your elastic virtual server on the AWS cloud. And I know you are familiar with this. The only comment I will make is that each EC2 instance belongs to a family of EC2 instances. And each family is unique in the proportion of uh, CPU, memory, storage, and networking capabilities. And these instance families are specialized to run particular types of workloads. So for compute-intensive applications, there's a C family of EC2 instances. Memory-intensive applications, there's the R family. It's very important in designing this RTC application architecture that you choose the right instance type, and Emma will be talking about that in more detail. EC2 gives you an open and flexible platform. Multiple operating systems are supported. Multiple network interfaces are supported. Each network interface supports multiple private IP addresses, which can be used as secondary private IP addresses. EC2 support the concept of a security group where you can establish stateful rules for who accesses the EC2 instance and on what protocols and ports. All of this capability lends itself well to easily laying out the topology we just saw and building it on the AWS cloud. It's important to talk about EC2 performance in the case of RTC workloads. And there are two capabilities on EC2 that are very relevant. The first is SRIOV. This is enabled on certain EC2 instance types by the use of an Intel driver, 82599. And it provides significantly higher 
I.O. performance while keeping CPU utilization low. A new product that was developed last year is the Elastic Network Adapter. This is an in-house custom PCI network device that was developed specially for EC2. With this ENA, the Elastic Network Adapter, on some instance types, you can get up to 25 gigabits per second bandwidth. We have seen our customers gain the benefit of these capabilities, especially in the case of um, small UDP packets. These capabilities have helped our customers achieve high PPS packets per second. Another important AWS service is AWS, is AWS Direct Connect. Direct Connect is a capability that allows you to have a dedicated private connection into AWS. You can create public interfaces on Direct Connect that connect to public Amazon services, or you can have um, a private virtual interface that connects to your private VPC on the Amazon cloud. Direct Connect usually has reduced data rates per gigabyte of data. Consistent network performance. You can design Direct Connect to support redundancy and fault tolerance. BGP is used to exchange the routing information in this case. Here is an example of um, an architecture that shows the connection all the way from an enterprise up to the AWS cloud using Direct Connect, using this dedicated connectivity path. Each AWS region has multiple Direct Connect locations, and each Direct Connect location has multiple redundant routers. Many diverse and resilient paths are built out from these Direct Connect locations to the AWS backbone. So let's now stitch together some of the capabilities we've talked about and build out a few um, reusable design patterns to achieve high availability and scalability. A very common pattern that we see in RTC applications is the active standby node for high availability. There are many reasons for this. Um, it's not always possible for stateful components to be configured in an active-active cluster. And also, there are many technologies and vendors out there that have products that are designed to use this active standby configuration. So in an on-premise network, you would have this pattern where you assign an IP that floats between the active standby node and at any given point in time is only associated with the active node. Well, you can implement the same floating IP pattern on the AWS cloud. And the reason you can do that is because of the capabilities in the platform. Firstly, Amazon EC2 instances offer support for multiple secondary private IP addresses. These secondary private IP addresses can be reassigned across different EC2 instances. This reassignment can be done programmatically because EC2 provides a rich API and SDK. All, all types of operating systems are supported on EC2. So if there's any operating system configuration that needs to be done for the networking to work, you can SSH into the EC2 instance and achieve that. So we actually have a workshop later today, um, TLC 303, where we go through the exercise of building out this pattern with asterisk as a media server, if you're interested. Auto-scaling. 
this is a feature that is possible in the cloud-based environment. It's born out of this era of cloud computing, where you automatically resize your compute clusters based on user load. Not only do you scale out, but you also scale in. Um, it's a mechanism to achieve fault tolerance, but also cost effectiveness. To, go, to implement auto-scaling, there are three things that you have to do. You have to create a launch configuration, which is where you tell auto-scaling what army you're going to use for your auto-scaling group. You can um, add automatic configuration scripts to the launch configuration. The second thing that you do is create an auto-scaling group. This is your logical group that will be used for the scaling. In the auto-scaling group, you specify your min, your max size of the cluster. And then finally, you define scaling policies. Scaling policies are a combination of a condition that is based on a metric that is monitored from the AWS resources using CloudWatch and an action that you want to take based on that metric. Auto-scaling has evolved into providing many sophisticated scaling policies. So you can implement step scaling policies to do incremental scaling action. You can um, use auto-scaling to create a target scaling policy. So for example, you can say, my target CPU utilization is 50%, and let auto-scaling handle all the actions underneath to maintain that target state. Well, this is great for stateless applications. But you're probably thinking, how does this help me if I have a stateful RTC component? And this, is, um, this capability to elegantly support auto-scaling in the case of stateful applications is supported by a feature called lifecycle hooks. And we'll talk about lifecycle hooks in more detail. But essentially, lifecycle hooks allow you to pause the state transition that is taking place during an auto-scaling action. And during that wait state, you can implement a custom action. Let's talk about a solution that uses SIP and look at how we would create a scalable, highly available architecture within a region. As you can see, you would have a VPC you would use multiple availability zones. But then you also have the op option to combine load balancing with auto-scaling to add both high availability, scalability, and cost-effectiveness. Um, at this present time, AWS has three load balancing products, fully managed load balancing products, the application load balancer, network load balancer, and the classic load balancer. The application load balancer is a layer 7 load balancer. It supports HTTP, HTTPS. It's not suitable for SIP over UDP or RTP over UDP. And the NLB, which is the network load balancer, it's a layer 4 load balancer. It supports load balancing at the connection level. It is actually uh, highly performant and um, can handle spikes in load. However, at the present time, the support is for TCP, which presents a challenge if you have UDP-based traffic. So my suggestion is that at this point to explore options that are available in the AWS marketplace and in the partner network, there are many viable options that support load balancing for SIP over UDP 
and RTP over UDP. And these have also been integrated with AWS capabilities. So there's a load balancer product, loadbalancer.org, that supports auto-scaling on the AWS platform, and there are several others. It's a lot simpler in the case of WebRTC to use this design pattern that combines load balancing with uh, auto-scaling because we're using WebSockets over TCP. In this scenario, the network load balancer is especially useful because it supports long-lived TCP connections, which are extremely useful for WebRTC communication. In this architecture, similar to the last, I just want to point out that all these AWS resources are being, are being monitored by CloudWatch, which is our managed monitoring service. And that allows us to configure rules using CloudWatch events that can be used to trigger certain user-defined actions. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. So far, we've talked about the active standby configuration for high availability. We've also talked about a load-balanced active cluster of nodes. But all of this has been within the context of a single region. What if you want to do cross-regional high availability? What if you have a global deployment? What if, importantly, you want to take advantage of AWS's global infrastructure? Well, this is where you would use Route 53. This is a fully managed DNS service with 100% SLA. It allows not only for routing policies that do failover, but it has a weighted round-robin routing policy that can be used for load balancing. It has a latency-based routing policy that is very effective in the case of RTC workloads. And I will give you an example of how. And it also does um, geo-DNS-based routing where you can specify uh, if the originating request is from country A, then the uh, domains that answer that request are as, um, specified. So in this architecture, what you see is a combination of Route 53 with load balancing. We have seen this type of um, pattern implemented by our customers who are also combining their on-premise environments with the global infrastructure on the AWS cloud platform. So for example, you could have your um, SVC and SIP proxy in your data center, but your media relay servers would be geographically located in various AWS regions. And you would use Route 53's latency-based routing feature to connect the user to the nearest media relay server. It's very interesting to see what you, our customers and partners, do with all these core AWS capabilities. And I just wanted to um, highlight one such example. A partner called datapath.io has developed an anycast IP service that uh, provides an anycast IP for any application hosted on the AWS platform. Some regions are supported. And the way it does this is by combining direct connect with Route 53. This Anycast service uses um, some software in their own data center for network optimization. And uh, routing is done through BGP. But for the end user, combining this type of partner service, an Anycast IP service in this case, with Route 53, provides the combination of a very low recovery time, because you don't have to worry about DNS propagation, 
the Anycast IP just fails over instantaneously, plus you have the resiliency of DNS failover. We talked about auto-scaling, and we briefly described lifecycle hooks. What I want to share with you is this design pattern that combines auto-scaling lifecycle hooks, CloudWatch events, and AWS Lambda. And this combination is especially useful when controlling stateful components in the RTC solution. Let us take, for example, the use case of a cluster of asterisk servers in an asterisk, a cluster of asterisk servers in an auto-scaling group. And let us consider the scenario where, because user demand has shrunk, the group is scaling in. In this scenario, if you use a lifecycle hook with the auto-scaling group, it essentially pauses the instance before a state transition takes place. In this case, the state transition that we care about is instance termination. So before an instance goes from the start of the terminating action to the termination state, it enters a wait state. And at that point, we can configure a CloudWatch event rule to call a target Lambda function. The Lambda function in this scenario, in this particular example, is doing something very simple. It is call, calling EC2 Systems Manager to run a script to run a command on the asterisk servers. The Lambda function could have been configured to do just about anything that you would have wanted it to do. In this scenario, we're using the run command to tell asterisk to wait for calls to complete before shutting down, to basically stop gracefully. Another example of a variation of this design pattern is dynamically updating Route 53 records based on auto-scaling state changes. At this point, I'd like to hand over the session to Ahmad to continue the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Shuma. Hi, everyone. Um, again, um, my name is Ahmed. I'm a solutions architect at AWS. I focus on real-time communications uh, and also on some of our um, AI and machine learning services. So you just saw the building blocks and design patterns um, that are needed to implement a scalable and reliable real-time communication system on AWS. But what if you wanted to do more? What if you wanted to really take advantage of the advanced and cutting edge technologies that are available in, in AWS. So you could really do that. So one of the advantages are having a real time uh, infrastructure in the cloud is that you can really take advantage. It makes it very easy to take advantage of all these cutting edge features. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is you can think about stuff that you can integrate with your real-time uh, infrastructure, stuff like augmenting your business applications and augmenting them by adding conversational interfaces using Amazon Lex, for example. Um, providing uh, text-to-speech services uh, through Amazon Poly. Uh, to your end users in multiple languages and dialects. 
And uh, if you are developing some kind of hardware device, any kind of hardware device that has a connection, has a microphone and a speaker, you can directly integrate Alexa voice services. Uh, using Alexa voice services, you can directly integrate Alexa into your application. So some powerful and cutting edge stuff that you can implement and integrate with your real-time applications. So something to think about, and that's a, um, that's a big topic, and I would encourage you, if you're interested in this, to go and look for sessions uh, specifically on, on, on Lex and Polly, and there are a bunch of sessions on how to use Alexa as well. Uh, but for now, we're gonna dive into some best practices. Um, and these best practices, are, I'm going to use the examples that I'm going to use are all going to be uh, based on SIP infrastructure. And I have a few demo as well, demos as well. Um, so let's get started with that. Um, so you'll probably, uh, you'll probably have infrastructure, uh, SIP infrastructure running in multiple AWS regions. And one of the great capabilities of going into AWS is the global footprint, as, as Shuma mentioned. And so um, when you have your real-time infrastructure within a VPC, obviously you have full control of how routing happens. But when the traffic leaves that VPC, when, that leaves, when, when it leaves that AWS region, you don't have a lot of control over how your traffic, how your media, and how your signaling is going uh, in between our AWS regions. And so this, this best practice sort of relates to leveraging, first of all, the global footprint of AWS, and secondly, it, it, it sort of shows you how you can implement your own custom routing by creating a SIP overlay. And what do I mean by a SIP overlay? So um, here, this is just a fictional depiction of our backbone. So this is the, uh, the solid lines represent a fictional depiction of the AWS backbone, which is very scalable, redundant, and highly available. If there are any issues, this is physical infrastructure, right? And so there are always issues like fiber cuts and stuff, and you don't feel a thing because underlying at the network level, uh, we have fast failover implemented through protocols like BGP, right? But what if you wanted to do some custom routing? And so let's say, let's take an example of uh, you know, two parties trying to communicate uh, from one coast to the other, right? And so if I were to make a call from the West Coast to the East Coast, uh, from Oregon, let's say, to Virginia, the traffic going between the regions is most probably under normal circumstances is going to take the direct backbone path that's connecting uh, one of the direct backbone, backbone paths that's connecting Oregon and Virginia, right? Uh, but what I can do, SIP is, a, SIP is a great protocol that gives you a lot of flexibility and has a lot of routing features as well. So what you can essentially do using SIP and SIP routing is uh, if you have all these, uh, this SIP uh, infrastructure running in these AWS regions, you can have a call and you can specify that, hey, under some certain circumstances, I want this call that's originating from Oregon to go through California on its way on to Virginia. So just a quick example. So let's, let's, let's look at a simplified architecture here. Um, and so a, um, a SIP call that's going from one region to the other region is probably going to take uh, a path like this. Now what if 
according to your business logic and according to the metrics that you're seeing, you're not happy with it, right? What, do you, what can you do? So here you can really affect the routing by implementing SIP uh, routing, and I'll show you uh, in the demo that's coming up, where a call like this can be rerouted like this, right? So let's uh, go and look at a demo on, on, and so I'll explain, uh, I'll quickly explain the demo setup here. Uh, so I have uh, FreePBX, which is a marketplace product, running um, in three different regions, uh, in Oregon, uh, in California, and in Virginia regions. Uh, that's represented by the green dot, and I've created SIP trunks that are connecting uh, all the three regions, right? So, and um, I'm going to make a, uh, make a phone call um, that's, uh, that's between uh, SIP IP phones. Uh, one of them is, is running on my laptop, and the other one was running um, on a smartphone, and I'm, a, I'm gonna make a call, uh, and you're gonna see the call come in um, on the screen, and then I'm gonna simulate um, a sort of network issue or something like that where you, know, you would like to reroute traffic, right? I want to reemphasize that this is something that's handled very, very quickly at the network le uh, layer already by the AWS backbone, but this is just showing the flexibility, right? If you wanted to implement your own logic and you wanted to say, hey, I want this call that's originating on the West Coast to go take this path, or I want this call that's originating in, in Sydney to take this path and go through Tokyo and whatnot, right? Um, so I'm going to simulate a failure, and then I'm going to... I'm going to uh, remake that call, and that call is going to go through like this, right? So let's take a look at this. I have a recorded demo right here. And so let me go ahead and, and play that. So here you see the free PBX uh, uh, marketplace product running. It's very easy to get started uh, from the marketplace. Uh, and this is a PBX endpoint, and I have two IP phones uh, connected to these uh, uh, to these, right? And so if I play this, um, so you'll see the two trunks that are going, one is going uh, to Virginia and the other one is going to California, right? And so if I look at the routing here and see the routing, the routing is saying, okay, take the trunk to Virginia and if that's not performing or if that's not up, use the trunk uh, uh, to SFO, which is our California region. And, and now I make the call that's, uh, that's gonna come in from my, uh, from my smartphone uh, into this, and you see the call coming in, right? So I'm gonna hang up the call, and I'm gonna go in and simulate a failure, where I go in into the trunk section, the SIP trunks, and I'm gonna go ahead and enable, uh, disable the trunk that's going out to uh, Virginia. I'm gonna apply that config, and I'm gonna go in and check into uh, my, SIP, uh, my asterisk configuration and see that I only have one. Previously I had two active trunks, and now I only have the trunk to SFO. So now I reroute the, uh, uh, I, I make the call, and the call is gonna still come in even though the SIP trunk is, is, is disabled. And so the call is getting routed through, uh, through California. So that's just a simple example of the 
you know, customized stuff that you can, uh, you can do over AWS. So one of the best practices is, we'll, we'll start with this, uh, we'll start creating a list of best practices. The first is really create a SIP overlay and take advantage of AWS's global uh, infrastructure. Secondly, and this is something that Shuma already touched upon, um, is, is sort of relevant to any kind of workload that's running uh, in AWS, right? And so, first of all, um, do not expect, you know, failures happen all the time. There are hardware failures happening. There are failures with disks happening all the time. So don't rely on the availability of a single instance, right? So every kind of role that you have within your stack, you should have a cluster for it. So here I'm showing a very simplified diagram where you have uh, a role for SPCs, a role for a SIP proxy and a PBX maybe, right? And so, um, any, you're protected against any single individual instance failure by having a cluster and doing the IP reassignment that Shuma talked about in her portion uh, and doing the failover uh, between the clusters. Um, now, Shuma also talked about, referred to uh, availability zones. Every region has multiple availability zones, which is a uh, isolated failure domain. It has separate, uh, every um, AZ has a separate power, cooling, and internet connectivity. So we are expecting you to design your applications so that if there is a catastrophic failure, a whole AZ goes down, your application uh, is resistant to that and, and, and survives that catastrophic event, right? So what happens if a whole availability zone goes down? So you have your active call and a whole AZ goes down, let's say there's a massive power outage and whatnot, you'll still have the second infrastructure running in the second AZ. Uh, and any active calls obviously are going to uh, get dropped, uh, but any new calls that come in will get rerouted through the second availability zone. And so you might ask, okay, how do I do this failover between different AZs? Uh, the preferred way is, is what Shuma talked about with the IP reassignment, okay? Um, you can use DNS for this kind of um, a failover, um, but DNS should be really be used uh, to do high availability between regions, uh, but not for this. And the reason for that is the inconsistency time for, for DNS. Uh, DNS, as, as you know, DNS records can get cached, and so uh, your failover times are not gonna be very reliable if you're using DNS, right? So I'm gonna still talk about a DNS feature here that you can leverage, and that's the DNS SRV records. So within DNS, there's a record type called SRV records that sort of um, functions as a service discovery mechanism for SIP. Um, and so one of the things that SRV supports is, is, is SIP. So I'll show you the example, and then I'll talk about what uh, is this good for, and what is this not good for. Um, so you have an IP endpoint, and I have two PBXs uh, running in different availability zones, and I have uh, DNS A-type records that are pointing to their respective IP addresses, right? Um, and so I go in and add an SRV record that starts with underscore SIP and the protocol, uh, the layer four protocol that I'm using, which is in this case is, is UDP, so underscore UDP as well. And that SRV record resolves and has an answer section that has 
two lines there, as you see. There are three numbers, and then that points to the A record uh, that's up top. And what do those, so what do those, uh, the three numbers mean? The first one is priority, which is lower is better. The second one is weight, so how do you want uh, uh, the traffic to get, uh, uh, to, get to these, uh, uh, these different, what weightage to use, right? And, and third one is the port to use. And that's a little typo there. It should be 5060, you know, as, uh, as I'm using SIP as an example. That's the standard port. So it's really a service discovery mechanism. So why would you use it and, and how would you use it? So you would have an IP endpoint and you would configure it just like any other IP endpoint. You give it a user ID and a password, and you, you set your domain to the top-level domain that you're using, which is east.example.com, uh, right? And uh, uh, so this, when an IP phone that supports the SRV records and, and this standard goes out to Route 53 and, and gets the response for SRV. It recognizes that there is, um, there is an answer of, uh, related to SIP that's running or UDP, and those are the two lines, right? Now, in this instance, in this example, the priority is the same for the two PBXs, and the weightage is the same. So it's, it's going to discover that, okay, I should use 5060 as the port, and I should uh, load balance traffic between these two equally. So you can really use, if you have a large amount of, um, of clients, you can really have an active-active scenario where you can use this mechanism to do load balancing. And so I, I, I previously said this is not probably a good idea for doing uh, uh, failover. Why is that? Again, uh, it's, it's DNS, it can get cached. So please, for failover, for, for load balancing, this is great. If you, ha if you have IP uh, phones or IP clients, SIP clients that, uh, that support the SRV records, go ahead and use this for load balancing. But for failover, please use the EC2 uh, floating IP, EC2 reassignment of IP. That will be a, a much faster failover. So those are SRV records. Uh, another thing is, okay, I can, you know, make the call between, uh, within my organization, right? How do I get out to the world? Uh, the way you get out of the world is, is by, usually you'll, you'll have a SIP trunk that's going to be provided by a service provider called ITSP because our, our, uh, we're going, going over uh, IP, right? Uh, and so our best practice here is wherever you have uh, infrastructure in every AZ, in every region, you should have uh, a SIP trunk going out to the, uh, to, to the ITSP. And so I have a little uh, demo here, uh, again. Um, and so one of our, uh, one of our uh, really good partners is Twilio, uh, and they provide this capability. They have a service called uh, Elastic SIP Trunking. And so within five minutes, you can get started in AWS by launching a marketplace product using, uh, uh, using uh, products such as free PBX, and you can very easily get connected uh, to, to the, uh, Twilio Elastic SIP trunking. It literally takes minutes, right? And so the best practice here would be wherever you have your SIP infrastructure, create the SIP trunking going out uh, in a redundant fashion, and then on top of that, you can then implement your own custom SIP routing to say, okay, if I wanna 
save money on, on long distance charges. Maybe I want to use the, the AWS backbone rather than the public switch, uh, public telephone network. Uh, go over that and then exit out some other uh, AWS region and then take my SIP trunk um, to Twilio and through the PSTN. So if I were to make a call, it'll probably uh, go like this, right? So I have a, another quick recorded demo here, and the demo setup again here is, is the same. I have the free PBX uh, running in three different regions, and I have SIP trunks. Uh, all I'm doing here is I've created another SIP trunk uh, uh, that's going out to Twilio. And uh, on top of that, I've, I've created a dial pattern that says, okay, uh, if this pattern is matched, if this is an external call that starts with one and has, uh, you know, 10 digits and whatever, so just route it out to this trunk. So this is how the call is going to go. So let's, let me go ahead and play this. So here you see the, uh, the, the trunk to Twilio. And uh, if I go in and look at the outbound routes, I'll see an outbound route entry for Twilio out. And if I go in, uh, I have that uh, match routes. So any, anything that matches the dial pattern, let's look at the dial pattern. So here's our dial pattern. So if these dial patterns are matched, it's going to go out to that SIP trunk that's pointing towards, uh, towards Twilio. And I'm going to make a call here. Welcome to Twilio. You have reached the trunking verification system. To All right, so you can see, so this is, uh, this is a, a number that's provided uh, by Twilio, and uh, you can use it to test uh, outgoing and incoming audio calls. So as you can see, it's very, very easy to get set up and have very redundant, scalable infrastructure. And so we add another line to our, uh, another bullet point to our best practices. Really here, the point is uh, use multiple uh, availability zones, of course. Uh, have clusters. Uh, use DNS to load balance between different regions. But within regions, uh, maybe I should have uh, articulated it here better. But within regions, use the IP reassignment to do failover. But you can use the DNS to do load balancing. All right, so the next topic is uh, closely related to, um, to the uh, AZ concept that we talked about, right? Um, so in this pattern, let's say you have two calls, two active calls going through your infrastructure. That's, that's in two different uh, AWS regions and is using four AZs within, within those regions. And you have the top call that's going through the AZ, but it's traversing and going into another AZ within the same AWS region. And so in the case of an AZ failure, what will happen is that you'll lose, in this instance, if you have just two calls, you'll lose 100% of your active calls. So another quick best practice is this notion of AZ affinity. And AZ affinity is essentially saying if the traffic signaling or media enters one AZ, it should just exit out that same AZ without ever going to another AZ within the same AWS region. And so in this instance, your traffic remains within different AZs, right? It doesn't cross the AZ boundary. And so what happens if I lose my 
whole AZ here is that I, I'm at a slight disadvantage at most 50% of active calls are lost, right? So bad scenario, but still not the worst case, right? It's some, somewhat of an improvement. And so we, we add a line where we say, okay, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's keep our media and signaling within one AZ in a region, right? So how do you, I, previously I talked about like SIP routing. So how do you decide when to reroute? How do you really monitor your, I mean, how do you know the state of your system? I mean, this goes without saying every system out there, you need to, to have monitoring, right? But it becomes super important uh, for real-time communication systems, right? So there's a lot of third-party tools, um, and uh, you can implement your own uh, custom monitoring as well. So the best practice here is to have detailed mo monitoring from day one. Um, so tools, open source tools that you can use, they're network level tools, like uh, obviously iPerf. Another open source tool that you could use uh, is SIPP. Now SIPP is an open source tool that's really meant to do load testing. So it's a fantastic tool, um, but it can also be used for monitoring because it really provides you with the capability of simulating uh, SIP scenarios, right? Um, and so you can do stuff like, hey, I want to test at uh, you know, 200 calls per second, right? Or SIP calls, so it will actually simulate those calls and you can run SIPP in a client or server mode, right? Uh, and so one of the ways that you can do this, you can implement your, your monitoring is, is use SIPP, take the, the statistics that are coming out of SIPP and take them into and ingest them into CloudWatch and then create alarms based on those metrics. And I have also have a, another demo on, on this, so we'll, we'll talk about that very quickly as well. Uh, so let's take a look at this demo. I have the same setup, um, but what I'm doing here is I'm running SIPP. So let's go back. I'm, I'm running SIPP in, uh, in US West 2, West 1, and US East 1. And I'm, uh, uh, I'm taking those statistics and I'm pushing them into CloudWatch. So let's see if we can switch. So. All right. So it seems like I've It's not running right now, but uh, I can show you here. So um, let's see. So right here, you'll see these uh, um, uh, this Python script running that's taking. Uh, I have these three windows open. This is uh, US East one that's running SIPP in server mode, uh, and this is running SIPP. It's a, it's a Python script that's running SIPP in in client mode, and it's. It's, it's uh, generating 200 calls per second. 
And so uh, over here I have uh, the same setup in SFO, and it, these are making calls over to, uh, to this guy uh, on, the, on, on the East Coast. And so what I'm doing here, uh, this is not running because I've, I lost the Wi-Fi signal, but I'll show you what's, what's going on. Over here, I'm taking two parameters, uh, two metrics. Uh, this is the number of successful calls, um, which is uh, about 200, right? And this is SIP retransmissions. And I'm taking these two metrics and I'm pushing them into CloudWatch. And so on the CloudWatch side, what's happening is I've created a, da a dashboard that says, okay, I, I can have, uh, I'll have this, uh, where I have this path that's SFO to IOD, and then I have 200 calls that are going on, and then I have another path that's from PDX to IOD, and I'll see the successful calls and SIP retransmits. And uh, one of them is a positive, one of them is sort of a negative uh, metric, and what I've done is I've, I've, I've created alarms, right? Uh, and so whenever I see SIP retransmits, I have uh, created the alarm where I can take manual remediation action or automatic remediation action where you can do stuff like um, uh, reroute traffic, uh, you can launch a Lambda function, uh, you can launch uh, uh, another function within your infrastructure that takes some kind of remediation action, or if you just prefer manual, you can you know, send out notifications and whatnot. So, that is all that I have, but I will just quickly recap. Um, actually, I do have one more. Um, so let me just switch back. Okay, so I have one more best practice here. So we'll just recap this uh, best practice. Implement SIP uh, monitoring and look at key metrics. So what are some of the key metrics? Um, you have successful calls that I'm using in this demo, and then SIP retransmits that I'm also using in this demo. And so I'm exporting these metrics into CloudWatch, and then I can, I can create alarms and then take actions on, on those alarms. Um, another one, one last one, is, uh, is something that Shuma also touched upon, is using the right instance type, right? And so this is, uh, this is really important because this will give you both performance and the best bang for your buck, right? Cost optimization as well. So uh, with every family we have, um, uh, with, with all, some of these families we have the network optimized instances uh, with uh, C3, C4, and now C5 as well. They'll give you uh, bandwidth up to one or 10 gigabytes. Uh, and then so we, we also have Elastic Network Adapter that gives you about 25 gigabytes of performance. But most of the customers that I talk to that are running these, inf uh, 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 these kind of workloads are using uh, the uh, Intel uh, vir uh, Virtual Function Adapter and SRIOV at one or 10 gigs uh, bandwidth. And so just to uh, recap and, and complete our list of best practices, use the right instance type as it will give you the right performance and the best bang for your buck. And so at this point, that's all we have, and we'll open it up for any questions that you might, that you might have.